17 years before the now infamous North Hollywood shootout was a bank robbery, shootout, and a manhunt that made the North Hollywood shootout look like a cartoon. The Norco bank robbery was a clusterfuck from the beginning. A bomb detonated but didn't go boom. Cops responding to the wrong bank as they were robbing one five miles away. A getaway car destroyed in a gun battle. A carjacked truck. Cops shot. A chase that involves a police car crashing into a cattle farm. A police helicopter being shot down. A kid hurt. A deputy killed and an L.A. County Sheriff SWAT team to the rescue. And that is just the beginning of this unbelievable true story. Recorded in Rocket City, USA. No bullshit. Just real talk. And now Deuce Conrad. On the afternoon of May 9th, 1980, five heavily armed men stormed a branch of the Security Pacific Bank in Norco, California. George Smith, 29, was the ringleader of the five-man team that entered the Security Pacific Bank. Smith had served two years in the United States Army as an artillery man and then was sent to West Germany where he worked with tactical nuclear weapons. After that, George worked as a maintenance man in Cypress, California. And it was during this time that he met Chris Harvin, a 27-year-old colleague who was exposed to George's an, uh, antichrist ideas of overthrowing uh, the government. And according to a former partner, Smith expressed an atheist worldview, insisting that he could just not believe in God. Uh, however, he would later become staunchly religious, swept up by Southern California's Christian youth culture. George Smith's new religious, uh, religion uh, began to focus on the rapture, a prophecy about the second coming of Jesus Christ, in which believers would reach heaven as earth descended into violent chaos. Smith's uh, apocalyptic beliefs were reinforced by his aforementioned experiences with tactical nuclear weapons. Now, all of this convinced him of a likely nuclear clash between the United States and the Soviet Union. And as you can imagine, this was in the middle of the Cold War, and there were already fears uh, about such an event. And it was because of this that George Smith's beliefs also turned him into a survivalist. He moved to Miraloma with his friend Chris Harvin, and together they hatched a plan to reject society, to prepare for the apocalypse, and to fund this, they were going to earn money by selling marijuana, which, by the way, they cultivated from 300 plants growing in their residence. But the marijuana business failed to materialize. Smith hatched a new plan to make money quick. What was that plan? They would rob a bank. Now, to realize his plan, George Smith had, and his main partner, Chris Harvin, recruited three more members to assist them. And the first to join were brothers uh, Belisario, also known as Billy, and Manuel, also known as Manny Delgado. Just 17 years old, Billy was uh, a truant with no fixed uh, address. He would serve as the getaway driver. His older brother Manny, 21, lived in Garden Grove and needed money to support his second child. Now, Manny's role was to storm the bank with the others, and it was also decided that Smith would act as a timekeeper. Then there was Russell Harbin. That's Chris's 26-year-old brother. Russell lived with his parents in Anaheim, some 35 miles away from Miraloma. Russell was also a father, and he also needed money to pay child support. None of these five robbers had a criminal record prior uh, to this other than minor drug charges. This, however, would be their first and final major crime. George planned the robbery. And it was going to take place at 10314 50th Street in Miraloma. Smith told police that the plan was all his. He went on to say that uh, he told them what to do in the bank. He said, I cased the bank. I made the bombs. I did all of that. George Smith was very proud of his job. His job in planning this bank robbery. He was very proud of the work that he had done. But unfortunately, that wasn't good enough. 
because George's plan was about to unravel. Since 1999, Rakuten has paid its members over $2 billion in cash back. Formerly known as Ebates, Rakuten is an affiliate reseller of over 2,500 online retailers. Uh, Rakuten passes part of their commission on their sales back to you in the form of a cash back payment. You see, you earn cash back by using the Rakuten online shopping portal. And using Rakuten is very uh, simple and easy. There are no fees or forms you need to fill out to get your money. Uh, But to get the cash back, all you have to do is start any online shopping you do at the Rakuten website. You'll click through their site to your preferred online store such as Target, Walmart, Sephora, Macy's, Nike, and many more. And then simply make your purchase as uh, usual. Easy, right? Well, I'm going to make it even better for you being a listener of the Deuce Conrad Show. As a first-time shopper, you will get up to $30 to use on your first purchase. Of course, certain terms and conditions apply. Visit www.deuceconradshow.com and select Promotions to get started today. Preparations began about a week and a half before the robbery date. George Smith visited the bank and memorized the layout. Now, that would help the team get in and out of the bank within Smith's two-limit timeline. Meanwhile, the men built an arsenal of weaponry that included shotguns, pistols, thousands of rounds of ammunition, and nine Armalite rifles. Now, they were particularly ambitious. So ambitious, in fact, that uh, they even had explosives. Working in his garage, Smith made a, made several grenades and incendiary bombs that could be thrown by hand or fired from a shotgun. He also made an IED, known as an improvised explosive device, which was designed to divert police from the bank. With the guns and explosives secured, Russell Harvin, Manny Delgado, and Billy Delgado would steal a van from the Bria Mall just off routes 90 and 57. Their victim was Gary Herrera, the owner of a 1979 Dodge van. The three criminals stole the van and took Herrera with them, driving to Corona. The final part of the heist opening act was to plant the IED, which the men placed on gas mains at a building site south of Norco. When the bomb detonated and the diversion was in effect, the robbers would storm the bank. The men planted the bomb. They lit the fuse and they waited for it to explode. But the bomb failed to detonate. Now they're without a diversion. Uh, The men would have to deal with the full force of Norco's emergency services, which would likely be reinforced by authorities from the local area. They declined not, and in fact, they decided to continue regardless. And they arrived at the Security Pacific Bank on 4th and Hammer at 3.30 p.m. Wearing parkas and ski masks, the men burst into the bank, which was busy with customers. Manny Delgado jumped onto the counter, wielding a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun while Smith roamed the floor with an HK-91, barking orders. Chris Harvin took the bank manager to the vault. It was there that he retrieved $20,000 in cash. Billy Delgado, however, kept the van's engine running, ready to make a quick escape. Sharon Dickens, an employee at the bank, remembered the scene. She said, we heard this tremendous noise. It was the four of them hitting the double doors at one time. I did attempt to push my silent alarm, but the suspect on the counter in front of me said, if any fucking alarms go off, the fucking bullets are going to fly. George Smith's plan was to be in and out of the bank within two minutes. And he made sure that the men stuck to it, shouting time repeatedly to keep his men fast and focused. However, even this was not quick enough, as the police had responded to a call from across the street and had a patrol car close by. When police arrived just two minutes later, the robbers made full use of their arsenal, firing hundreds of rounds from their powerful assault rifles 
and when it was over, 33 police vehicles would be damaged. Eight police officers would be wounded, and unfortunately, three people would lose their lives. I bet you have been to Walmart at some time in your life and probably shopped there. I bet you even probably get groceries there from time to time. Did you know that Walmart has grocery pickup? And in fact, I can save you $15 on your first order of $50 or more. For more information, go to www.deuceconradshow.com and select promotions. There will be a link there where you can sign up as a new customer. And again, you'll save $15 on that first order of $50 or more. Smith and his gang forced the tellers to hand over $20,000 in cash. Now, that's equivalent to about $63,000 in today's standards. All the while, the fifth robber kept watch outside. Unknown to the robbers, an employee at a different bank across the street spotted them entering the bank and called the police. Riverside County uh, Sheriff Deputy Glenn Belaski was the first officer to arrive at the scene. As he pulled up, one of the robbers left outside with their getaway van, radioed his partners inside the bank, and said, We have been spotted. Let's go. Let's go. The robbers exited the bank and began to fire on Belaski's police cruiser, blowing out the windshield and forcing Belaski to throw the vehicle into reverse, which in turn caused him to crash into another car in the street. Deputy Belaski then exited his car and took cover behind his patrol vehicle. Deputy Belaski returned fire at the gunmen. He is now engaged in a firefight with the men, firing his pump-action shotgun four times at a distance of 25 yards. The gunmen got into the vehicle, and once all five men were inside, they attempted to flee the scene, all the while they continued to shoot at Deputy Belaski. As the van sped away, a pellet from Belaski's shotgun struck the driver, Billy Delgado just behind his right ear, killing him and sending the van crashing into a telephone pole guidewire. The fourth round hit Smith in the groin. With their driver all but dead at the wheel, the robber's van crashed into a fence, at which point the remaining men burst out of the side and fired a huge volley of more than 200 rounds at Deputy Belaski, hitting his vehicle some 47 times. And in that volley of of firing, Belaski was hit five times. Once in the face, the upper left shoulder, and both forearms and the left elbow, which included a vein in his forearm that bled profusely. Shortly before Belaski was injured, Officer Andy Delgado, no relation to the brothers, arrived at the scene and fired upon the robbers. Soon after, Deputy Chuck Howell appeared and immediately came under fire. Both men were outgunned by the suspects. However, despite the danger, Howell managed to reach Belaski, stem some of the bleeding, and was able to extract him and take him to the Corona Community Hospital. With the two other officers at the hospital, Deputy Delgado was left to fend for himself. He heroically continued to fire at the remaining suspects. But unfortunately, Deputy Delgado was too far away to stop them. With their getaway vehicle disabled, Deputy Delgado witnessed them steal a yellow pickup truck, which they loaded with a cache of guns and ammunition. George Smith sat in a pool of his own blood in the back of the stolen pickup and watched the Security Pacific Bank recede into the distance. He released an empty magazine out of the bottom of the heckler and snapped in a fresh jungle clip. They crested the hill and continued north. All they needed to do was make it one mile more up Hammer, which to the cold cars parked in the uh, Little League field and and get the hell out of uh, Norco. Uh, Once they got to those cold cars, they would steal one of them. 
George looked up and saw Russell Harvin standing behind the cab of the truck holding the shorty AR. Did you get hit? He asked him over the wind, whipping through the open bed of the truck. I got shot in the head, Russ said flatly. You got what? Russ went back to his post, setting the barrel of the shorty AR-15 on the roof of the cab between two acetylene tanks and scanning the road in front of them. Chris Harvin drove the truck with George Smith in the passenger seat and Manny and Russell standing in the bed. As Harvin drove, the others defended the vehicle. The men drove north, opening fire on Deputy Delgado as they passed him. Just four minutes had passed since the bank robbery. Billy Delgado was dead, a cop was badly injured, and the $20,000 was left behind. Alas, this was just the opening act of the Norco shootout. The bank robbers continued north with reckless abandon, running lights and hitting various cars. They shot at the pursuing officers and threw homemade bombs out of the back of the truck. Whenever police units got near, the men would fire aggressively and accurately, hitting numerous officers and members of the public. Approaching the light at 5th Street, Chris Harvin saw he had a problem. Ivan Hopkins was stopped at the red light when something struck his Datsun compact pickup from behind and began pushing it into heavy traffic, crossing the intersection in front of him. Instinctively, Hopkins kept his foot on the brake, his tire screeching in resistance. Russell Harvin vaulted over the side cabinets and ran out into the intersection. Move it or I will blow your head off, he screamed. Aiming the shorty AR at Hopkins from five feet away, Hopkins released the brake on his pickup and accelerated through the intersection. A half mile up at 6th Street, cars were also backed up at the, at the red light. This time, Chris swung the yellow truck into oncoming lanes and barreled through the intersection, slamming into the side of a car, making a left turn off 6th Street, sending Levester Dice, Plymouth Champ, spinning out of its path. As the truck cleared the intersection and passed, a motorist named Janice Cannons saw a man in a ski mask just feet away lower a gun and shoot at her. Cannon slammed, slammed on her brakes and jerked the car in onto the right shoulder. While southbound on Hammer, Riverside Deputy Darrell Reed was approaching 6th Street when he caught sight of the yellow truck headed in the opposite direction and two men aiming rifles at him. Both fired. As the two vehicles passed each other, a bullet passed through the Sheriff's Star emblazoned on the door of Reed's unit and into his left leg just below the knee. I've been shot, Reed called over the radio pulling into a side street to check the wound. They're shooting from the back of the vehicle, he radioed. I'm headed to the hospital. Why did he pass the cars? George Smith screamed to Russell Harvin as the trucks shot past the Little League field at uh, Detroit Street moments after firing on Reed. Russ leaned out over the side of the truck and hollered something into the window at his brother. He turned back to Smith. Too many people, too many cops. Chris downshifted and swung right onto Shizman Road into an area known as Wineville as George watched the Matador and Z-28 disappear behind them. Deputy Doug Borden never saw the truck on Schleisman until it was right on him. Guns already blasting away. Borden swerved into the front yard of a dairy farm. The men fired on him as they passed, punching a hole through a water tank and spraying gunfire into a pen of milk cows. The vehicle is on Schleisman. It's headed towards Etiwanda. A stunned Borden shouted into his mic. He too screamed, I have been hit by fire. What if I told you that you could own slices of the company's funds and crypto assets that you believe in, starting with as little as $1? You see, fractional investing makes it easy to start small and add as you gain confidence. Now, Public offers thousands of stocks and ETFs that you can own no matter where you start from. Go to www.deuceconradshow.com and select the promotions link. From there, you can sign up directly with Public and get a free stock. Driving on 68th Street, 
Veteran California Highway Patrol Officer Doug Ernest could hardly believe it when he saw a yellow truck appear from Schleisman and turn toward him. Manny Delgado was sitting on the passenger window frame aiming Chris Harvin's heckler over the roof of the cab. There was a muzzle flash and the telephone pole just outside Ernest's driver's side window exploded in a hail of wood splinters. Ernest ducked across the seat as bullets tore into the roof and center posts separating the front and rear doors of his patrol car. Others zinging off the pavement and corral fencing around him. As Ernest U-turned in pursuit, the truck veered off 68th Street onto Holmes Avenue where Riverside Deputy Rolf Parks was waiting for them. Hawaiian by heritage, raised in the Belmont Shore area of Long Beach, 27-year-old Deputy Rolf Napukonako Parks had been following radio reports of the suspect's location when he turned off at Awanda onto Holmes, a two-lane road, lined with ramshackle houses, double wides, and animal pens. As he pulled his cruiser onto the dirt shoulder beside a horse corral, the yellow truck appeared, headed directly towards him. Bullets ricocheted off the pavement in front of him with a singing sound and cracked like bullwhips overhead. There was a tearing sound of uh, round striking his vehicle, ripping through multiple layers of metal, plastic, and glass with uh, three-dimensional quality. Closing in on him, the truck methodically crossed the dotted line, veering into his lane like a trapper walking up to a snared animal to blow its brains out. The thing seemed to amble in no hurry at all. These people are not trying to get away from me, Roth thought. They're trying to kill me. With no time to escape, he lay across the bench seat, shielding his head with his left arm, peering out from underneath his elbow. The truck slowly rolled into his field of view no more than a yard away from his window, drifting by like a pirate ship, pulling broadsides on some helpless, wallowing frigate. And then they appeared one by one, looking like pirates themselves. Christopher Harvin reached out the window and fired a forty-five Lone Coat revolver at point-blank range. The bullet striking the quarter panel and door. Manny Delgado managed to get off a few shots over the top of the cab, gouging ruts in the roof of Parks' unit. The face of Russell Harvin appeared above Parks, looming like some sort of insane hillbilly while aiming his rifle down at a violent angle. Broken glass sprayed Rolf in the face. He shut his eyes against it. Something whizzed by, cleaving his scalp right down the middle, just above his hairline. Rolf could hear the truck accelerate away. He opened his eyes and felt his head. There was a, only a spotting of blood from a flesh wound. A few inches lower, and it would have been the proverbial bullet right between his eyes. There was glass all throughout his hair. There was stinging in his right eye. But Rolf Parks knew the impossible had just happened. He had survived. Deputy Rolf Parks, whose head was grazed by a bullet, remembered the intensity of that day. He said, as soon as I got round the corner, they're blasting the crap out of me, and I'm not even near them. They're 50 to 100 yards down the road. Hey, Deuce Conrad here. I just want to tell you about Ibotta. Ibotta is one of the greatest things I have ever laid my eyes on. It's a it's a great tool for actually earning money. And trust me, I've tried all these surveys and everything that the internet seems to say that you're going to make money, but nothing has made me money like Ibotta. In my first week of trying Ibotta, I earned approximately 40 bucks just shopping. It's like coupon savings for people that don't like to clip coupons. Anyways, there is a link in the description of this podcast uh, for you to become a partner with me in Ibotta. And when you submit your first receipt, you'll earn 10 bucks. That simple, that easy, just by going and shopping at places that you're already shopping, such as Walmart, Kroger, Publix. And it's easy to cash out as well. You can get uh, gift cards to Amazon or have a direct payment made to you. Anyways, check the link down below. Use uh, the referral code K-A-X-R-F-W-J and earn $10 on your first receipt submitted.
Parks responded with an urgent warning to Brown and anyone else who might be in the path of the yellow truck. Get your shotgun out immediately. They're firing numerous rounds. The sirens wailed from all sides as Chris took a hard left at a T-intersection off Holmes northbound onto Etiwanda. Russ flipped the magazine on the AR, locked in a full one, and then steadied the gun between the two acetylene tanks and waited. They were coming up on a busy four-way intersection, and Riverside deputies were suddenly everywhere. Making a right turn off of Lemonite, Herman Brown was no more than 25 feet away when both Manny and Russ opened fire on him. A bullet from a two twenty three fragmented, uh, penetrating his left arm and with more than 100 tiny shards of copper jacketing. Another came to the door, bearing half of the slug so deep into his knee that it would never be taken out. A third punched a hole through his windshield and grazed the back of his neck as he ducked. And had he not, Brown would have been shot through the face. A civilian named Gilbert Pena was driving his green pickup uh, on his way home from work when he made a left on Etiwanda behind Herman Brown. Pena's windshield suddenly shattered and he felt something graze the side of his face. Bullets went through his windshield, rear window, driver's door, and tailgate. Then his side mirror blew up. Pena hit the brakes and drove to the and dove to the floorboard of his pickup, his face bleeding from the glass and bullet fragments. The next to take fire was Dave Madden, who was turning on Etiwanda just behind Gilbert. When he saw the yellow truck, all Mad Dog had time to do was jam on the brakes and duck beneath the dashboard. The two vehicles passed each other so quickly that the men shooting from the back barely had time to fire off a couple of rounds at Madden before they were through the intersection at Lemonite. Now, it was on Lemonite approaching Etiwanda that Deputy Ken McDaniel saw the yellow truck blow through the intersection in front of him. Turning left onto Etiwanda less than 100 feet behind the truck, McDaniel took a ram from George Smith's 308 through his windshield that fragmented on impact. McDaniel's felt a sharp pain in his right shoulder. I've been hit, he radioed, pulling his unit to the side of the road. The moment McDaniel pulled over, a 308 caliber bullet whistled through Roth Park's windshield as well, hissing maliciously as it passed within inches of his head. Parks had pulled his Dodge Monaco patrol unit onto the dirt shoulder behind McDaniel, exposing Fred Chisholm in turn. Smith immediately put a round into Chisholm's radiator. The rookie slid his cruiser under the shoulder behind McDaniel and Parks as the CHP unit with Doug Ernest shot past to continue the chase. Seeing the Riverside Sheriff's units on the side of the road, Dave Madden pulled behind them while taking fire himself. We're going to have to lay back because of the amount of rounds they're firing at us, Madden Radio Dispatch. In the dispatch center, Gary Keeter, Gladys Wiza, and Sharon Markham were shocked. Only 12 minutes and 27 seconds into Keeter's initial 211 dispatch, and they already had five deputies and three civilians wounded by gunfire. The shooting of McDaniels, Brown, and civilian Gilbert Pena had occurred on a 100-yard stretch of Etiwanda in a matter of just 10 seconds. Now reports had the yellow truck leaving Wineville and headed into the neighborhood of Miraloma. As unimaginable as the first 12 and a half minutes had been, something told Gary Keeter things were about to get worse. Did you know that for the simple task of creating a Webull brokerage account, the company is willing to give you one free stock? Now, these stocks are currently being valued between $2.50 all the way up to $250, which is not bad when you consider that it's free money. Now, once you make an initial deposit of $100 or more, Webull will then give you a second stock valued between $8 and $1,600. Now, you will have access to these stocks as soon as your deposit settles, which usually takes around five business days. The stock selection pool is comprised of uh, securities that have a market cap of $2.5 billion. They're U.S.-based, and of course, they trade on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. Their website states that when you open your account, you have a 1 in 100 chance of being awarded securities from either Facebook, Procter & Gamble, Starbucks, or Snap. 
However, when you deposit that initial $100, you have a 1 in 50 chance to garner a stock from a list of companies to include Google, Facebook, Procter & Gamble, Starbucks, Kraft Heinz, or Snap. Now, in addition to these odds, the terms of service go further on to explain your chances of ending up with securities of a certain value. Both your initial stock and the stock you receive after your deposit have different odds that you should be aware of. Go to www.deuceconradshow.com, select the promotion links, and from there you can sign up directly with Weeble. The pursuit would last for more than 25 miles. Riverside County deputies were joined in the pursuit by officers of other, of other area law enforcement agencies, including the CHP, uh, San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department, and others. Smith told interrogators that they weren't trying to kill police officers. He explained that they were trying to hit the engines on the police vehicles to stop them. Yet they injured seven police officers and a 12-year-old boy, Robert Oglesby, who was taking a bicycle ride with his friends and was hit by a single bullet in the finger. Racing eastbound on Belgrave in an unmarked brown Ford Crown Victoria, Riverside detectives Joe Zellis saw the yellow truck bolt out of the Candu Market and cross Belgrave directly in front of him. The detective slowed sharply, turned left, and fell in behind the truck. Within seconds, a man in a ski mask standing in the back peeled off three rounds at Zellis. The gunman then coolly ejected the spent magazine, replacing it with a fresh one and resumed firing. Edward 214, I'm behind the vehicle northbound, Zealous radioed. They are hooded suspects. Just put another clip in the weapon and fired at this officer. With Zealous following, the truck got on the Panoma Freeway westbound at Mission Boulevard. Zealous had a suspicion where they might be headed. Interstate 15 went straight through San Bernardino County on a newly constructed stretch known as the DeVore Freeway before bisecting the San Gabriel Mountains through the Cajon Pass. After that, it was a whole lot of nothing until Las Vegas. But nobody was stupid enough to try to outrun the cops across the Mojave Desert. If these guys went north on I-15, they were headed for San Bernardino National Forest which was 1,200 square miles of winding mountain roads, deep canyons, and rugged wilderness. The nearest access to the San Gabriels was 16 miles away at the Sierra Avenue off-ramp and then straight up to Little Creek Canyon. A pursuit of Little Creek would change everything. As Zillis expected, the truck stayed right. It headed for the transition ramp to I-15 north and a quarter mile ahead. But Joe Zellis never expected what he saw next. Traveling at over 55 miles per hour, Manny Delgado, who had been riding in the bed of the truck since the Candu Market, climbed on top of the metal cabinets, leaned far over the side, and pulled open the passenger door and swung inside the cab. The truck took the sweeping own ramp on Interstate 15 and accelerated to 65 miles per hour. Moments later, the passenger door flew open again and Manny climbed back over the cabinets and into the bed of the truck. Zealous was so stunned he never even radioed it in. Seeing that they had not shaken the only cop car still chasing them, George set his 308 to the side, dug deep into the pockets of, the, of his duster and pulled out the two beer can grenades he had carried into the bank. Using his Zippo to light the fuse, he then tossed the hissing grenade over the tailgate. The bomb skipped over the asphalt as the Crown Victoria drove directly over it. To Joe Zellis, it sounded like a shotgun blast going off just beneath his car. When the order to launch San Bernardino County Sheriff's Helicopter 40 King 2 came in, to Rialto Airport, Lieutenant John Gibson and Flight Sergeant Ron Heidel had their Hughes 500 chopper in the air within seconds. Heidel contacted Paul Beignet on Baker 1 over the Ontario Airport frequency and got the, got the rundown of the suspect's vehicle. Beignet had one other thing to tell 40 King before turning the pursuit. We might have taken fire from these guys over Miraloma. 
Now, Lieutenant John Gibson knew all about taking fire in a helicopter. Gibson had done 20 months of heavy combat flying Hueys in Vietnam. And like most experienced combat chopper pilots, his senses were supernaturally turned to the subtle aeronautics of a bullet in flight, especially one aimed in his direction. Gibson swept the Hughes 500 over the sprawling grounds of the Kaiser Steel Plant and moved into an altitude of 800 feet, shadowing the suspect vehicle directly overhead. Heidel confirmed three men in the bed of the truck armed with long guns, possibly AR-15s. When the bank robber saw a police helicopter on their tail, they resolved to stop it. Smith explained, we figured if we could stop the helicopter, we could get away. Because we figured that was the... One thing keeping everybody else hanging out. That was when Lieutenant Gibson heard that familiar noise. The first four were in rapid succession. A thick whooshing sound as they flew by close to the cockpit. He felt the concussions deep in his chest. We're taking fire, Gibson said calmly. Pulling sharply to the right in an evasive move, there was a loud crack as if someone had hit the bottom of the chopper with a baseball bat. And at that moment, the cockpit began to fill with blue smoke. Check the radios and panel, he said to Heidel. The chopper seemed to be holding up okay, but Gibson knew things in a wounded airship could change in an instant. We lost our Riverside radio, Heidel reported. Also, Took, through to, uh, took two through the bubble, he added, pointing to the plexiglass encasing the front of the craft. A 308 round from George Smith's Heckler had passed through the titanium alloy landing skid below the cockpit, and it had fragmented into three parts that penetrated the airframe, ripping apart electrical panels and wiring. Get King one in the air, Gibson said, as the smoke began to clear in the cockpit. Minutes later, San Bernito Sheriff's Helicopter 40 King 1 with pilot Ed Mabry and spotter John Placina descended and fell in behind 40 King 2. Be careful, Heidel warned their replacement. These people will shoot at you. John Gibson pointed his wounded aircraft northeast towards Rialto Airport. It would have been closer to land at Ontario Airport, but the Ontario Comm Center directed them away. You see, the largest passenger airport in the Inland Empire was shutting down their airspace and diverting all air traffic to Orange County. They were not taking any chances on a commercial jetliner getting shot out of the sky by a bunch of crazy bank robbers from Norco. The gunman's semi-automatic rifles made quick work of the helicopter's fuselage, forcing it to land before it fell out of the sky. At Robin Hood, we think investing is better with friends. So for everyone you invite to join, you'll both earn a reward of stock. As soon as your friend signs up and links their bank account, we'll credit each of your accounts with a reward stock. Now keep in mind, you can receive up to $500 in reward stocks each calendar year. So feel free to spread the word. Go to www.deuceconradshow.com and select the promotions link. And from there, you can sign up directly with Robinhood today. On Interstate 15, civilian cars were jamming on their brakes, swerving wildly and bailing off the freeway to avoid gunfire. Harold Phibbs was driving with his girlfriend in his wine-red 1977 Dodge van when a yellow utility truck passed them in the number two lane. A man standing in the back looked down at Phibbs, lowered a rifle, and fired around into the front of the van just below the windshield. Steam hissed from the radiator. Phibbs jammed on the brakes and pulled into the breakdown lane. Farther back, Rolf Parks and Fred Chisholm, riding together in Chisholm's unit, began taking fire. Fall back behind that semi so they can't see us, Parks instructed. Chisholm pulled behind the cover of a big rig and trailer. 
but it didn't work. The men in the truck fired on the semi instead, putting two rounds into its engine compartment, sending it veering onto the median. And all of the adrenaline and chaos, the gravity of the situation dawned on Deputy Roth Parks. I realized I'm probably in the biggest law enforcement chase there ever was, and I'm the unit in front chasing these guys, he said. Exposed again, a bullet struck Chisholm's unit. Parks was stunned. The yellow truck was far ahead of them. He leaned over and turned off the switch to their light bar, realizing it was a drawing the fire. Keep your lights off, Parks radioed. They've been firing from a half a mile, hitting units. As Parks' vehicle broke down because of the gunfire damage, he observed the robber's yellow truck barrel towards Little Creek in the San Gabriel Mountains. They passed Joe Zellis to take the lead in the pursuit, but had plenty of company now. Riverside Deputy Jim Evans had taken the Panoma Freeway all the way from Moreno Valley and was third in the pursuit line. Other fresh horses began to enter the pursuit, most notably the California Highway Patrol. You see, the freeway was CHP turf. Units flooded onto I-15 from all directions, riding together in an auto theft unit. Patrolman Steve Batchelor and uh, Peter Vanderkamp merged off of Interstate 10 onto I-15. To Vanderkamp, the bullets flying by their vehicle sounded like the buzz of giant bees. Patrolman Ronald Kaufman was out of his vehicle blocking a freeway on ramp when the truck went by. Bullets kicked up dirt around his feet. Kaufman jumped in his unit and joined the pursuit. Along with the CHP, units from five additional police agencies entered the chase north of Highway 10. San Bernito County Sheriff's deputies out of the Fontana substation began to appear along with Fontana City PD. Operating over separate radio frequencies, officers from these different agencies could not speak directly to each other. Those with scanners could hear traffic on their frequencies and then relay any important information over their own channel. The lack of interagency communication was a significant problem with the potential for dangerous consequences. Unable to radio these amped-up cowboys from other departments joining the chase, Rolf Parks frequently resorted to hand signals or mouthing words to get urgent messages across. Often that message was, slow down before you get your tail shot off. When a CHP unit driven by Joe Hawley came charging up the fast lane with a Riverside deputy just behind, other Riverside units tried to warn them off. Be advised, they're firing. I wouldn't get too close, Joe Zellis cautioned. You're getting too close, another unit warned. That's the vehicle right in front of you, man. Look out. Chris Harvin saw the two units racing up behind him, and he wasn't having any of it. He slowed the truck sharply, drawing the two cop cars precariously close to the gunman in the back, and all three opened fire, spraying the police units with gunfire. Holly and the Riverside County deputy dropped back. Riverside deputy Bill Eldridge had managed to catch up to the pursuit when he heard bullets whizzing over his unit and then rounds smashed into the front of his vehicle. To Edward 71, this unit is hitting down, he transmitted. Highway Patrolman Dennis Johnson had just accelerated on the freeway when something flew out of the back of the truck and exploded in the air beside his vehicle. Shrapnel peppered the front body of uh, Fred Chisholm's nearby unit, sounding as if someone had thrown a handful of gravel against it. As the robbers tore through Little Creek Canyon, Deputy Jim Evans joined the chase. An RSO lieutenant monitoring the traffic decided he had heard enough and ordered all pursuing units to fall back until they could figure out what they were going to do here. Wait until they run out of gas or ammo, Zella suggested. A mile short of the Sierra Avenue exit, Fred Chisholm's unit began to cough and lose speed. After making multiple rounds, after taking multiple rounds and shrapnel from a fragmented grenade, the, the Plymouth Fury had finally had it. It was a second unit shot out from under Roth Parks that day. Did they get off on Sierra, a Riverside unit radioed? That's affirmative, Jim Evans answered. Now the lead Riverside deputy unit in the pursuit. Jim Evans was a Texas-born Green Beret and Vietnam veteran before he became a deputy sheriff at the Riverside County Sheriff's Department. They described him as a real cowboy, 
who wore jeans, boots, and a cowboy shirt. Evans took interest in a woman named Mary Sweeney after she contacted the police about her abusive husband. He kept in touch with Sweeney, writing her letters, and eventually they married and had a child. In fact, one day when Evans had their child on his knee, he said, You know, Mary, some men don't ever get to see their sons grow up. When asked what he meant, he answered, I don't know, it's just a feeling. Evans was referring to his premonitions of being outgunned in the line of duty. In fact, he had campaigned for the police to be better equipped to defend themselves. And ironically, nothing was ever done about it. As Chisholm limped off the freeway at Sierra Avenue, Roth eyed the San Gabriel Mountains towering above the valley just two miles to the east. Like Zealous Parks had a strong suspicion that that was where the truck might be headed. He hoped to God that he was wrong. The next transmission put the yellow truck heading under the interstate east on Sierra Avenue. Now there was no doubt these guys were headed straight up Little Creek Canyon. Instantly, the pursuit took a more ominous feel. You see, when it came to law enforcement, nothing good ever happened in Little Creek. On May 9th, 1980, Evans didn't let up in his pursuit along the ragged mountainside. Deputy Daniel McCarty was close behind him, trying to keep up. But then Evans' car came to an abrupt halt, just behind a sharp bend in the road. It was around the bend that the robbers had stopped their vehicle, and those robbers had assumed their positions. Are you looking for unbiased news in a world of biased media? Look no further. 1440 provides an impartial view of what's happening in the world so our readers can form their own conclusions. 1440 scours hundreds of sources each and every day to bring you a single morning briefing thoughtfully curated by experts. Straight to your email with no haggling or unnecessary spam. Get even more benefits by signing up through the Deuce Conrad Show affiliate link. Visit www.deuceconradshow.com and select Promotions to sign up today. Rising abruptly from the coastal flatlands of San Gabriel Mountains through which Little Creek has carved itself quickly, soared elevations of over 10,000 feet at the summit of Mount Baldy. As dangerous as it is beautiful, Little Creek Canyon can be extremely uninviting terrain. Earthquakes, rock slides, wildfires, and flash floods are common. The steep hillsides are covered with California chaparral, which uh, you know is made up of scrub oak, manzanita, bug brush, sumac, and sage. At higher elevations, the ecosystem changes to scattered pine groves of Douglas fir, ponderosa, and sugar pine. The place has always attracted loners, outsiders, and outlaws. In fact, early settlers, including gold miners, trappers, moonshiners, and horse thieves, who hid their stolen animals up in the canyon. The explosion of illegal street drugs brought traffickers into the canyon alongside the population of 600 or so permanent residents. San Bernardino Sheriff's Units and County Coroner's Vans became frequent visitors. San Bernardino County Sheriff's Deputies D.J. McCarty and Jim McFerrin both had their taste of death in the canyon, so they were not happy when they heard the pursuit of the Norco bank robbers was headed into Little Creek. Marty had, McCarty had been coming off of a two-shift changing out his uniform at the Fontana substation when he heard that there was some serious stuff going down just over the county line in Riverside. A local boy with a sweeping Glenn Campbell's hairstyle and irrelevant personality, the 26-year-old McCarty had a little over one year on the force. 
Deputy James McFerrin was just starting his 4 p.m. shift. Tall and soft-spoken, Mac was an old-school cop who always referred to himself as a peace officer. Evans might have been the lead RSO unit, but he was only the number three car in the overall pursuit. Coming off Interstate 15, two CHP units had grabbed the one and two spots with Steve Batchelor and Peter Van Camp riding together in the lead vehicle and patrolman John, excuse me, Joe Hawley just behind, neither of which had any ability to communicate with Evans. Attempts by the California Highway Patrol units to keep their distance in the canyon were countered by Chris Harbin's ambush tactics. On straightaways, Harvin accelerated the truck up to speeds of 50 miles per hour, only to lay back on blind curves so that Russ, Manny, and George could open up at close range when pursuing units appeared around the bend. You see, it was a deadly game of cat and mouse that continued up the canyon and through the tiny communities of Scotland and Little Creek Village. Now, beyond that lay only campgrounds and raw wilderness virtually unchanged since the days of the Wild West. At 3,000 feet... What had been a clear, warm spring day in Norco, excuse me, now had a bite of cold and a cloud cover moving in. High above them, patches of snow still held on the hillsides of Baldy. As he sped up the canyon, Jim Evans could hear the San Bernardino County Sheriff's uh, Sheriff's Office helicopter somewhere in the skies above him, but could not receive their transmissions. The only system designed for interagency communications was the California Law Enforcement Mutual Aid Radio System, or CLEMARS. Implementation was complicated, and the Riverside Sheriff's Office capability was limited to several handheld CLEMARS radios. But at that moment, one of them happened to be in the hands of a Riverside deputy in the pursuit named Don Bender, who happened to be a sergeant. Edward 320, we got communications with the chopper Bender radioed. Okay, is the chopper on Sierra? Can you see him? Evans responded. Affirmative, he's almost at the end of the paved road. It was far from a perfect solution. With Bender relaying information between Evans and Spotter, 40 King 1. The result was a 10 to 15 second communication lag, but at least Evans now had a pair of eyes to tell him the one thing he wanted to know most. Was he about to get ambushed? 320, can you tell us how far behind we are? Evans asked. We have blind curves. We want to know how far back we are. Just a minute, we'll check what the chopper, Bender said. Okay, now he's moving out again. Bender relayed almost 20 seconds later, continuing northbound on the paved road. 17 miles up the canyon, the pursuit abruptly slowed as Little Creek Road became a narrow, rain-rutted dirt road, suitable only for four-wheel drive vehicles. Dirt kicked up by lead vehicles, by the lead vehicles, excuse me, obscured visibility. The farther up they went, the worse it got. Approaching a tight horseshoe bend carved into the hillside, Chris Harvin spotted an opportunity to take out a lead vehicle and block the pursuit line. Evans had spotted it too. Looks like they're going to lay back on the curve. Next one coming up on us, he radioed the bender. Have that chopper keep watching. Tell them if they stop, that's what we want to know. Coming out of the bend in the horseshoe, Harvin abruptly brought the truck to a halt. Manny and Russ stood up and fired across the ravine at Evans and the two lead CHP units on the other side. A line of bullets kicked up dirt on the hillside just above the hood of Bachelor and Vanderkamp's patrol car before Chris took off again. Another five miles up the road, Little Creek Road passed the mouth of Coldwater Canyon, turned west to cross the Wide Creek and uh, Wide Creek bed and up a, a gray to a campground known as Stockton Flats. The elevation rose to 6,000 feet. At another blind curve, Russ and Manny tossed two highly explosive acetylene gas cylinders out of the back of the truck along with a five-gallon can of diesel fuel. As the lead CHP units weaved their units past the obstacles, George Smith attempted to detonate the tanks with rounds from his 308. Just like the first bomb, the tanks failed to explode. Jim McFerrin and DJ McCarty 
knew they must be getting close to the front of the pursuit line, passing a CHP unit. McFerrin came up on the rear bumper of the San Bernardino Sheriff's Deputy, Mike Linehan. With a civilian reserve deputy named Margaret Martin on board, Linehan pulled over to let McFerrin and McCarty fly past. That left only Evans and the CHP unit with Bachelor and Vanderkamp between McFerrin and the yellow truck. Tipped off at the sheriff's office unit with the automatic was coming up behind them, Bachelor angled his CHP car towards the side of the road. For a moment, Evans seemed to follow, but then swung back out in front of McFerrin. Okay, I've got the lead unit now, Evans radioed. Moments later, the road changed dramatically. In all the dust, there was no way Jim Evans, DJ McCarty, or James McFerrin could have seen the sign the Forest Service had posted there. Dangerous road. No unauthorized vehicles beyond this point. While tough, McFerrin's nature tended toward the quiet and gentle as compared to the brash and colorful McCarty. McFerrin was on his way to intercept the pursuit when he heard the report that 40 King II had been grounded by gunfire. He wheeled the Ford Fairlane Patrol Unit into sweeping U-turn across Foothill Boulevard. I'm heading back to the Fontana Station, he radioed. Somebody get the AR. It was the only semi-automatic rifle in the entire department arsenal. It was a Colt M16 uh, rifle seized by deputies from a drug dealer during, the high, during a high-speed chase. The Army didn't want it back, so the 223 caliber rifle with full and semi-automatic capabilities hung around the station. Jim McFerrin and DJ McCarty knew they must be getting close to the front of the pursuit line, passing a CHP unit. They came up on that rear bumper of Michael Linehan. Again, Evans responded, I've got the lead. Now that they're going up this road, this road that is has turned treacherous, so treacherous, in fact, that the Forest Service posted that sign, Dangerous Road. What were they about to get into? Etched along the western face of the tallest mountain in the San Gabriel Range, Baldy Notch Road rises from a 6,012-foot elevation at Stockton Flats to a summit of almost 8,000 feet. Any trip up Baldy Notch Road was a harrowing journey of steep inclines, declines, and switchbacks on a single-track dirt road clinging to the mountainside with drops of up to 500 feet on one side and unstable upslopes on the other. Dangerous in the best of conditions, a run up Baldy Notch under heavy gunfire was unthinkable. You know, it was the stuff of nightmares. A few hundred yards into the climb, the road horseshoed back on itself. The three gunmen opened up on the unit, still moving through Stockton Flats. In the narrow canyon, the gunshots echoed sharply back and forth off rock-faced cliffs on three sides. Chris Harvin hit the accelerator, and the truck disappeared around a tight curve. I've got a bad curve coming up here. What are they doing, Evans asked. He's still moving, Bender relayed, but the delay in getting the information to Evans had been almost 15 seconds. Evans continued up the grade 100 yards behind the truck and watched as it disappeared around a bend to the right, leading into a straight, sharp ascent. Are they moving, he asked Bender. There was no reply. Fifteen seconds later, Evans came around the bend and had his answer. Okay, we're hit. Evans screamed in the mic so sharply it distorted the transmission, making it almost unintelligible. But everyone who knew it, everyone who heard it knew that something very bad had just happened. Deputy Evans, hid behind his, hid behind his patrol car and reloaded his weapon. Acorns is the leading micro-investing app in the United States. It's easy to use. Mobile-first technology makes it simple for anyone to set aside and invest life-spare money. Acorns allows customers to automatically invest in a low-cost, diversified portfolio of exchange-traded funds offered by some of the world's top asset managers, including Vanguard and BlackRock. Customers grow their wealth in one of five portfolios constructed with help from world-renowned Nobel Laureate economist Dr. Harry Markowitz. 
Acorn's smart portfolio algorithms automatically work in the background of life, helping users build wealth naturally, pennies at a time. From Acorns, Mighty Oaks Do Grow. Hey, I'm using Acorns, and I love how easy it is to save and invest for my future. Join me, and you'll get a free $5 investment. Go to www.deuceconradshow.com and select the promotions link, and from there, you can sign up directly with Acorns. When he heard McFerrin's request for the AR, DJ McCarty raced the vehicle yard to retrieve the weapon from the trunk of a sergeant's unit along with twenty round with four twenty round magazines. While the department provided no training on the M sixteen, there was plenty of military vets on the force who knew how to fire one, and McCarty was not one of them. McFerrin came racing into the vehicle lot, and DJ jumped in the passenger seat. Let's dispatch. Let dispatch know we have the AR. He said, tire screaming as they tore out of the lot. They need to tell everyone in front of us to get out of our way. We are a quarter mile from the ranger station on Sierra Road in the National Forest, and they are firing like crazy. With Deputy Jim Evans' cool West Texas country draw and a calm delivery, there was no question who was now the lead RSO unit in the pursuit. It was only the content of Evans' reports that betrayed just how perilous his situation becomes since plunging into the mouth of Little Creek Canyon. I think my unit just got hit with three rounds. He reported fall back. They're really firing on us now. McCarty observed what had happened. All I could think was don't get up. But he got up and he took a round in the right eye which basically killed him instantly. Jim, talk. Evans, you there. Edward 20, unit with Evans. Evans, are they in the truck? Evans, who is in the truck? There was no answer. There was no one left in the truck. Tragically, Evans' premonition had come true. Stunned by the horror of Deputy Jim Evans' death, Deputy McCarty attempted to gather himself. However, the gunmen were now focused on him, showering his patrol car with bullets every time they saw movement. Fortunately, McCarty had much more than a thirty-eight revolver to defend himself with. On the seat of the car was that fully automatic M16 that he had retrieved from the station's evidence room. McCarty got up and fired like hell, sending the robbers off into the woods. As the sun set on Little Creek, the robbers began to feel the pain of their wounds. George Smith was bleeding out. I was feeling really weak. I'd lost too much blood, he said. Meanwhile, the officers set up camp and waited for the morning to make their move on the remaining criminals. The morning began easily with officers and Los Angeles County Sheriff SWAT team members locating Smith and the Harvin brothers with no resistance. However, Manny Delgado was shot dead by police when he was seen carrying a gun. He was shot four times, the second round killing him instantly. With the death of Manny, the Norco shootout was finally over. Suspect Chris Harvin was hit once in the back by Deputy Evans, while suspect George Smith was hit twice in the leg and groin by Deputy Belaski. In all, eight officers had been wounded. Riverside County Sheriff Deputy Glenn Belaski was hit five times in the face, upper left shoulder, both forearms, and the left elbow. Riverside County Sheriff Deputy Darrell Reed was hit once in the back of his left knee. Riverside County Sheriff Deputy Rolf Parks was hit three times in the head, face, and arm. Riverside County Sheriff Deputy Herman Brown was hit in the lower left leg by multiple bullet fragments. Riverside County Sheriff Deputy Ken McDaniels was hit once in the right shoulder. Riverside County Sheriff Deputy Tony Renyard was hit once in the left elbow. California Highway Patrol Officer Bill Crow was hit once in the right arm. 
San Bernardino, San Bernardino County Sheriff's Deputy DJ McCarty was hit once in the right arm, and Riverside County Sheriff's Deputy Jim Evans was shot in the right eye and killed. George Smith, Chris Harvin, and Russell Harvin were found guilty of first-degree murder, as well as 45 counts of attempted murder, assault, armed robbery, kidnapping, and use of explosives. They were each sentenced to life without parole. Thank you for listening to the Deuce Conrad Show on Spotify Podcast. In case you didn't know, you can also hear this podcast on Google Podcast and Apple Podcast and most podcast platforms across the web. For more information about tonight's show, you can also visit www.deuceconradshow.com. Visit show notes for more details.